the Antenu Energy Transition Podcast. Today with Professor Christina Vogt from University of Oslo and we're going to talk about climate negotiations and the outcome of COP26. Let's go. There's a lot of lobbyism ongoing, you know, in, in all directions, but there's also lobbyism for fossil fuels and coal and oil and agriculture and business transport, you know, what have you. Welcome to the Antenu Energy Transition podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the outcomes of COP26. COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it's the yearly reoccurring negotiation for how we as humanity and human society on the planet want to tackle climate change and make sure that we don't go beyond levels of climate, uh, global warming that will actually have really negative impact on us as a society, but also, for example, on oceans, on, on biodiversities and the losses of them. So I'm really flattered to actually have a lovely guest here with me. Um, she's a professor at the Department of Public and International Law at University of Oslo. And she's been at COP negotiations for more than 10 years. And she's worked as a legal advisor and negotiator for the government of Norway. Um, yeah, on many on these UN climate negotiations. And she's currently the first co-chair of the Paris Agreement Compliance and Implementation Committee. And what that is, we'll talk about in a second as well. But back to our guest. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Christina Vogt. Hello. <laughs> It's great, to, great to be here. Christina, before we actually dive in, would you give me 10 seconds of who you became the person that you actually are and what gets you up in the morning? <laughs> uh, my children, I guess. <laughs> uh, oh, my children also are the reason why I go to these negotiations <laughs> every year because it is the biggest challenge we are facing and it becomes very clear when you have when you have children and this is our future. And you know, if you can do something about it with the means that you have, and I'm a lawyer, uh, then you know, I, I try to to bring my my knowledge and my expertise in into these negotiations. Yeah, lovely. That's really great. And it's how did how did you become a, a negotiator for the Norwegian government or with the Norwegian government, even though you're German? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I uh, when, after I finished my PhD here at the University of Oslo, I took a couple of years off from academia and I applied for a job at the Norwegian Ministry for the Environment and got it. <laughs> and within a couple of days, I found myself to be uh, a negotiator in the climate negotiations. That was a job I, I had applied for and, and I had to jump into that cold water and it's really cold water. Um, so I worked for two or three years uh, full time at, at the Norwegian ministry. And then I, when I became a professor and I left the ministry, I stayed in contact with them and, and worked for them for more than 10 years now as, as a um, negotiator and, and a legal advisor. Oh, great. Yeah. So that means every year in November, beginning of December, you travel to these remote uh, destinations and then, uh, yeah, you talk to them and you help negotiating. Once such a negotiation has passed, how much time do you actually have to do other things before the preparations for the next round uh, directly starts? Or is that is that a fluid process and you're always working on that pretty much? It is much more than those two weeks once a year. I mean, this is when when the you know world attention is focused more or less on the climate negotiations. But there are intersessional meetings. Uh, there's usually two weeks in June or in, in May in Bonn where the main secretariat is. But in between, you know, there, there are constant meetings and discussions and you know working groups. Uh, but that that's probably not so much of interest <laughs> to the media. But the work is is quite a you know, a constant and a permanent one. 
So how, how much work would you think are done at these COPs every year and how much of the uh, how much of the work is really done around the year? So is it just that all the fancy people come to these COPs and then they yeah hold fancy speeches, but most of the work is done in the other parts of the year or is there really stuff being done at the COPs? Well, the decisions are being made at the COPs. Uh, the COP, as you said, that's the conference of the parties to the uh, the Paris Agreement or the Framework Convention on Climate Change, that's a decision-making body. That's where every party is represented. And we currently have 196 uh, states that are represented there. And it's only when they get together in person that they can actually make decisions. Um, and, and that's why they, they have these big meetings once a year. So the other meetings that I just mentioned, it's a kind of preparatory meetings because, you know, you, agreeing With 196 parties, it's really, really difficult. And it's it's agreeing by consensus, which means that everybody has to agree. And that needs a lot of preparation, a lot of exchanges and consultations. And they, they are ongoing throughout the year. So they prepare for that final meeting of the year when then we all sit together and, and have to, you know, stake out the, the decisions. My first question actually on uh, on my structure would be why why like it's a very basic question so I I know but like give give us the the main reason why these conference of the parties need to happen. Yeah. Well maybe you have to step one you know one or take one step back and that's the question is why do we actually need for example international treaties that deal with climate change like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or the Paris Agreement. Why cannot everybody do you know whatever needs to be done? Why do we have to agree? an international law, how to address climate change. And that's a very valid, valid question because, you know, it's a, it's a collective action problem, which has community, community, oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It has been building up over time, over, over uh, many, many, many years, over centuries, and it's dispersed in, in terms of contributors. So you have to find a solution where everybody who contributes to this, a cumulative problem is part of the solution. Uh, and that is only possible by, you know, some sort of international agreement. Uh, at the same time, we also know that those that will hit hardest by climate change, small island developing states, least developing countries, they have contributed the least to the problem, but they also will have to, um, you know, have uh, possibilities to receive funding or support for adaptation measures. And that all these different interests, they have to be balanced against them or each other. And that is why we need first the United Nations Framework Convention, which is an international treaty dating back from 1992. And then we had the Kyoto Protocol and now the Paris Agreement adopted in 2015 and, and entered into force in 2016. So that's we, we need these international treaties as that, that common forum for states to cooperate. And within these treaties, there are mandatory meetings of the governing body, which is the Conference of the Parties. And it is actually said in the, in the Paris Agreement or in the Framework Convention that the, the governing body meets once a year for two weeks towards the end of the year. So this is mandatory. But why do we need these meetings? Why do we need these COPs other than that? <laughs> because they're mandatory? Um, it is that forum, as I already explained, for decision making, but it is also the forum for meeting each other for learning from each other, for learning what others are doing on climate change, for pushing up ambition. Uh, very important because, for example, the Paris Agreement is based on peer pressure. You know, states are looking at each other and the idea is that if, if some states do more, then this influences others also to do more. Uh, and so, you know, ratcheting, ratcheting up ambition over time. 
Um, so this meeting place, this forum where they can actually sit around a table, look at each other and, and uh, you know, push up ambition is, is equally important. But also for, for learning and for, you know, addressing concerns of, of, of small island states, uh, very important that you actually have that, that uh, physical forum of, uh, of encounter. Yeah. You just mentioned very important cops. So you mentioned the one in Kyoto that was in 1997 and the one in, in Paris in 1915. But the first one was in Berlin. And why, why is it like that we only started with these cops, these conferences of the parties in the 90s, while we were there was quite some signs already in the 70s and 80s saying, oh, this climate change thing could really develop into a big problem. Like, can you maybe take us back a little bit in, in what, what, what made these first COP really take place? Well, I mean, we, the recognition that climate change is a problem really started in the mid-late 80s, and then it was picked up by the report by Gruhal and Brundtland, the then uh, Norwegian prime minister, uh, her report, Our Common Future, the report of the World Commission on Environment and Development, pointed out that we need international uh, agreements on biodiversity, but also on climate change. And out of that, the negotiations started on an international convention, international treaty to address climate change, which was then adopted in Rio in 1992. So that was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, adopted in 1992, and then it took two years for that convention to enter into force. So it entered into force in 1994. And then after it entered into force, we had its first COP, its first conference of the parties, which was then in 1995. That was the first time the, the, uh, the, the, they met. And then 26 years later, <laughs> that's how we got to, actually 27 years now we got to 2021 because we didn't have a, a meeting last year due to the pandemic. But ever since 1995, there has been a COP every year, well, except for last year. The Paris Agreement is, is key because there it was defined that we need to um, limit the global warming well below two, two, uh, two degrees centigrade and if, if possible uh, to keep it at 1.5 degree. But why was that, that not talked about in the Kyoto Protocol? So maybe take us to the, to, to the differences between the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. We, we do have to start with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which I just mentioned, because that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the background agreement that's still there and that defines everything what we do in, in this world. But the, the Framework Convention is exactly what it is. It's a framework convention. It's very broad. It doesn't have any specific uh, obligations for parties, but it, it put the issue of climate change on the world agenda in a legally binding agreement. Um, but it was very clear to the parties that it wasn't specific enough and there would have to be additional protocols or additional agreements to make it more specific what parties actually need to do. And out of that, the negotiations started immediately on what then became the, the, the Kyoto Protocol, which was adopted, as you said, in 1997. Uh, but the Kyoto Protocol contained obligations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions only for developed countries. Developing countries didn't have any obligations, only developed countries, minus the United States, who said, well, we won't join <laughs> because if developing countries don't have obligations, then we think that's unfair, and so we won't join. That was under the Bush, Bush uh, administration. And then later, Canada also left for some, some reason. So the Kyoto Protocol was a good start, but it didn't capture um, most of, of uh, global emissions because developing countries weren't there, and the U.S. then as a major emitter was not a part. So in, um, in Copenhagen in 2009, parties had already started to say uh, or to agree or to work towards a global agreement, which really captures all parties in a binding 
binding agreement. Now, Copenhagen was a failure to quite a significant extent. I remember that, yes. <laughs> we all remember that. I suffered through two weeks, cold weeks in Copenhagen. But what came out of Copenhagen was the idea, well, well two things. One thing was, we won't give up, we'll try again. And the other idea was maybe it is not um, possible to have this top-down approach where everybody has to agree on a certain percentage to reduce their emissions, but we take a different view. We take it from top, uh, from bottom up, not from top down, where 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 every party is coming forward with their own plans. That that is, was an idea or concept that that arose out of Copenhagen. So in, just a year, two years later, in 2011, parties met in Durban and said, okay, we will negotiate again uh, uh, on a global agreement that would be applicable to all parties. And then from 2011 all the way to 2015, we negotiated what then became the uh, Pairs Agreement. And the importance of the Pairs Agreement, there, there are many aspects in it that are are really important. One is that, as you rightly said, it sets this overarching temperature goal of keeping global warming well below two degrees, pursuing efforts to stay at 1.5 degrees. And I'm happy to say a little bit more about 1.5 a little later. But the most important thing is also that it 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 draws all parties under this legally binding umbrella where, where every single 196 parties have now the legal obligation to put forward their climate plans or their nationally determined contributions as they're called every five years. You you mentioned very uh, like several times that these that the Cure Protocol and the Paris Agreement are both legally binding agreements. But you also said that the US didn't get in or like went out of it. Why was it actually possible, for example, to get out of such 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 agreements? And why was it that the United States, for example, did that? No, well, I mean, first of all, when the different different reasons here, the Kyoto Protocol, uh, the United States never ratified it. Uh, they they just said we will never going to join it because it treats developed and developing countries differently, and and we don't think that's equitable. That's not just. That's not fair. So we won't join. Um, so that's a different story. When it came to the Paris Agreement, United States withdrew under the uh, Trump uh, administration, as we probably all heard. Um, then U.S. President Trump, uh, very early on in his in his uh, you know time, uh, announced that he would withdraw the U.S. from the from the Paris Agreement, and he did that after that first. You know, it was a the timeline that he had to obey. Um, and the reason for that, well, the only <laughs> only. Then President Trump knows. Well, since then, the United States is back in, and it's a party again. You know, the, the current Biden administration. He, President Biden, joined on the first day of his of his uh, term. But uh, the reason why, as you ask, why is it possible for states to withdraw from a legally binding treaty? Well, that's you know, it's part of the negotiations. You 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 find agreement, you find consensus, and you get parties on board. Um, but they always have to have the assurance that if if something changes in their domestic policies, they can get out again. If and there is a withdrawal possibility in Article 26, I think, of the Paris or 25 of the Paris Agreement. So if they wouldn't have the chance, or or at least the assurance that they could get out, they may not even join in the first place. So there is a you know is a is a trade-off between getting as many parties on board as possible, but also given that the assur assurance that, you know, you could get out if you if you needed to. That's just part of international treaty law. It's standard. That's just how it goes. Yeah. You, you said also that the Paris Agreement is more like a, like a bottom-up approach, while the Kyoto Protocol is more a top-down approach. So do I understand it correctly that when we look at the Paris Agreement, that since it is a, a bottom-up approach, that 
each of the countries, as you said, needs to show the or like present the, their national con determined contributions every five years. So, so what happens uh, if these national determined contributions do are not enough for for what a specific country needs to manage? Um, and who defines the levels of emission reduction for each country? What's the difference in the process there? Sure. I mean, that's that's the. The, the logic of the Paris Agreement is that each party puts forward its own nationally determined contribution where nobody else can tell country X how much to put into that national determined contribution. What number should there be there? And, you know, Norway, 50, 55% in 2030, the EU now the same. Um, that is something that is uh, that is nationally determined. Uh, so there is no process procedure under the Paris Agreement that would actually check whether that's enough or it should be more or it's you know it's sufficient. That is that you know nationally determined uh, element of it, and that's what I meant with with bottom up, uh, where every party puts it forward. But what happens is there is a um, currently there is a synthesis report where the for example the, the Secretariat uh, to the United Nations Framework Convention they look at uh, at the numbers that parties put in their NDCs and accumulate them and say, okay, if we look at what is currently in NDCs, that means we're is looking... Is it enough or is it no, not enough? No, it's not enough. It, it would lead to <laughs> 2.7 degrees warming or something. But that's, as I said, that's the whole rationale of the Paris Agreement. It's like every five years, parties have to put forward a new NDC and that new NDC has to progress beyond or above and beyond the previous one. So every time, every five years, parties have to put forward better climate plans that are higher in ambition so that collectively they reach where they need to be. But we're not there yet. Um, that, that's, that's definitely true. In these NDCs that we have right now, for example, you said they are renewed every five years, but do the NDCs for Nor from Norway, from Germany, from all these countries, do they only look at the next five years or do they also look at, okay, the, the time when each of these countries wants to be carbon neutral? So that, that, does it state end dates, for example, Germany, I think, has 45, but I don't know if that's also part of the German NDC. Can you, like, how, how is that structured? Is it just for the next five years or until climate neutrality? No, it is. It, that's um, that's an that's an interesting question. No, the the NDCs are currently only for five years. Some some have ten years. <laughs> the European Union had ten years. That's one of the outcomes. <clears throat> I'm sorry of uh, of um, Glasgow is that now there's an agreement that they actually are only five years NDCs and not you know, ten years or fifteen years. Uh, but we may want to talk a little bit about Glasgow uh, later. But um, but that that's something that that um, you know parties um, have in their own in their own uh, um, uh, national plans and and legislation. But those carbon neutrality targets around 2050 or China 2060 or India 2070, they are not linked to the NDC. These are just statements that hang in the open air basically, and they're not they're not anchored into any any particular document. Um, That, that still has to happen. All right. So now the, 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 the topic, uh, the, the, the name of this episode is, is the outcomes of COP26. So let's start talking about COP26. So COP26 took place in Glasgow in the, in the United Kingdom from the 31st of October until the 12th of November 2021. So this year, and people who listen to this uh, in 2022, it's going to be last year. Um, Before, but before we really go out in, into the into the outcomes of it, I would like to give the audience an idea of how how such conference of the parties are actually organized. So the first question would be like, who's actually participating, who's negotiating, who has access, and what happens all around it. You get there, and then what do you see there, Christina? 
Well, in Glasgow, for example, there were 35,000 people, which was a lot of people in a pandemic. But usually they're even, you know, more like around 50 or 70,000 people. And the, the question is, what are all these people doing there? And and actually, there are three different levels or three different universes that come together at the COP. One is the real or the, the state negotiators, the civil servants that are there representing their government and negotiating on behalf of their governments. A different level is, for example, in Glasgow, heads of states. There were, I don't know how many, 50, 70 heads of state that came, gave their speeches, went uh, left again. That's a different level. It has nothing to do with the negotiations, really. It's about, you know, giving input and direction. It's like general general statements. And then the third level are what is called side events, where observers, NGOs, business representatives, academic representatives, they meet in some kind of, you know, climate fair, where they have lots and lots and lots of side events, where they, you know, talk about different topics, projects, network, but it's yet another of these three levels. And they have, you know, some overlap, but not not very much. Yeah, which is, I'm wondering, like, wh how does the interaction look like? As you, as, as you're like an official negotiator for the country of Norway, are you approached, for example, by, by NGO people? Do they know where you are? Do they know how to find you? So is that a challenge for you? Or, or do you like just, you know, go through there and no one realizes what what you are doing? Well, Glasgow was my 15th cop. <laughs> so by by now, you know, you, you know, a lot of people, many people stay, but also there, there's a lot of uh, new people coming in. But, but, you know, the, the, I, I do know a lot of the negotiators. I, I in my field, I also know, you know, a lot of NGOs, so, you know, walking through the venue from the entrance to the negotiate, the real negotiation uh, venue is usually very at the very end of the cop. And, you know, you have to walk all the way through and, you know, you, you meet people, you stop, you talk uh, because negotiations and a cop by the end of the day, it's a, it's a people's business. You know, you have to, uh, you have to establish trust. You have to establish confidence, and that's only possible by actually talking uh, to people. We had two years of Zoom and Teams uh, attempts to negotiations that didn't work quite well. Um, so it's it's a people's business, and you know, stopping for a coffee for a talk is what sometimes can make the entire difference. Yeah, countries like Norway. How many people are on such a team, and, and does it differ from rather small countries to rather big countries? Oh, of course. I mean, these days the, the delegations are kind of downscaled, scaled because they're not terribly much uh, topics still to negotiate. But for example, in Paris, we were about, I would say, 25, 30 people in the Norwegian delegation that actually negotiated. And when I say negotiated, it's those that actually do sit at the microphone and, and speak <laughs> on behalf of Norway. Um, but in the delegation, there, there were about 300 people. You know, there were parliamentarians, there were observers, there are youth representatives, Sami representatives, business representatives. <laughs> it's, it's a big group, but not all of them are actually negotiating. That is a fairly limited uh, number of people who have the uh, credentials to actually you know, speak on behalf of Norway. Yeah. Last question before we get into the into the outcomes. I have like I've got some friends who also go to these negotiations, obviously, but more from like a from an NGO point of view, or like they are with NGOs, and they say that it was really hard to get access because it was not so well organized. And then they also said that there were a lot. I heard there were a lot of fossil fuel lobbyists there. Uh, could do you confirm that, or like do you, do you get to see these kind of lobbyists, or like how how does that work? 
Or do they just talk to each other? Probably not. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> they talk to everyone. Um, there's a lot of lobbyism uh, ongoing, you know, in, in all directions. But there's also lobbyism for fossil fuels and coal and oil and agriculture and business transport, you know, what have you. They're, they're all there. But in addition, also, you know, many, many other voices. But this is what climate change is and what makes it so challenging because it's such a complex issue which goes really into all sectors, you know, be it fossil fuels, of course, or be it, you know, air transport or what we eat and, and how we live and what we drive with. And they have their representatives there and they try to influence negotiators. They have their lobby uh, um, activities, of, of course. Um, but, you know, the question is, would you want to keep them outside the, the venue? I don't know. Um, that, that would be, of course, a possibility. It has been discussed, but uh, by the end of the day, it was decided it might be better to have them in the in the rooms, in the game, maybe to have some exchanges and see if it's possible, you know, to, to find some consensus or compromises uh, rather than, than having really, you know, opposite views. Yeah, I think that's probably yeah very much a topic that can be discussed as well. Um, because I'm I'm not there to to judge anyone on the left or on the right side, but it, it's just it's just an interesting. Uh, I think it's an interesting topic to see how how such conferences are actually organized. Okay, so let's go to the outcomes. So when before we started recording this, I learned that it's not just <laughs> that it's not about the cover decision, but it's very much about the uh, this uh, the, this COP was very much about the finalization of the Paris Agreement rulebook. So can you just take me or like take us, take me and the audience just in what are the big topics that were negotiated and what are these two different like layers or levels that were uh, negotiated? Sure. Um, let, let's start with the rule book, which, in my view, I think is the most important outcome from from Glasgow. You know, if you if you have a look at the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement isn't very long; it's like twelve pages or something. And of course, it's very limited what you can squeeze into twelve pages. So it was very clear in in twenty fifteen when we, when we negotiated that that in order to make this effective and to you know be implemented, there need to be more specific rules, and we would negotiate them over time. For example, rules on carbon trading on carbon markets or rules on transparency on the reports that parties have to provide. So we did this for three years after, after the Paris Agreement was adopted. And then the rule book primarily was finalized in Katowice in 2018. But some bits and pieces were missing, like the rules on carbon trading and some of the rules on transparency. But they're really important elements to make Paris work. And then for years afterwards, in, in where did we meet after, after Katowice? In um, Madrid. Uh, we tried and failed, and then last year there was no meeting. So it was really important that these rules were adopted now in, in Glasgow, and, and they were. And that was a big, big uh, success because now all the detailed rules for the Paris Agreement are in place. And now no party can say anymore, oh, we still have to negotiate. We can't start implementing because that's not, that's not an excuse anymore because the rules are there on carbon trading, on transparency, on timeframes like five years NDCs. And that, in my view, is the most important outcome of, of GLAD. When, when these are, yeah, okay, go. No, no. <laughs> No, but in addition, what we also have is what, what you call the, the cover decision, which is the, the first decision that, that was taken by the governing body. And that's always a bit more political decision where like, like the 
direction of travel for the next couple of years is, is agreed. And this was where a lot of discussions uh, evolved in, 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 in Glasgow around how to anchor the 1.5 degree goal, how to keep 1.5 alive. That was the big slogan for, for Glasgow, but also how to uh, assure that parties increase their ambition in their NDCs over time, that they would actually go back home after Glasgow, check whether they couldn't do anything more and come back next year with new and updated NDCs. Um, but we also have now a mitigation work stream, something that we've never had before. And this is also where the discussion around oil and uh, coal face down and face out of coal and, and fossil fuel subsidies um, happen. That, that's the cover decision, which is another important element of the outcome because it's kind of a booster to the Paris Agreement. It gives more life uh, into it and, and anticipates net zero to, to 2050 and, and focuses very strongly on 1.5 uh, degrees rather than well below two degrees. Yeah. So coming back just to the finalization of this rule book and then maybe talk about the, the cover decision as well. When you do these negotiations and then everyone agrees or every, uh, every is, is, is it just a normal voting process for each of these? No, it's it's the opposite. It's uh, you 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 make decisions by consensus, not by voting. And consensus means basically that nobody opposes strongly. <laughs> nobody is opposing. So if you if you feel that we are close to agreement, you have a text where you know everybody could be on board. Then the usually you have someone who chairs the meeting, that the president of the COP or something, uh, would say well, we we're going now to adopt this decision. Is there any opposition? And if nobody raises their hand, <laughs> then it's adopted. So you try to avoid opposition. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I think and that's probably the only the only way how it could work on a global scale. Um, you said that the two main things there were carbon trading and tra the transparency framework. So, how's carbon trading going to look like in the next years then? Huh. yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> it's uh, what well, we have to see. Because okay, just get to give give context. So obviously, there's there's for example in the EU we have a carbon trading system. There's I think several carbon trading systems in the states, um, and also in China there's some. I think there's I think it's more than one, and I'm thinking that in Korea there's also one. If I'm not totally mistaken, so carbon trading is not something that's been like just around for some years, but it like it's been there. And also I think under the Kyoto Protocol there was also a carbon uh, carbon uh, cap and trade system in place. So what what about the future of carbon? Trading now, if we look at emissions on the global scale, now, let's let's start with the examples that you mentioned. You have a, we have an emissions trading system within the EU. You have uh, national emissions trading systems in China and South Korea and you know other countries, New Zealand and so forth. But these are national tools to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, where countries. They set themselves a, a, a roof, a, a um, cap, and then companies can trade. But what the Paris Agreement does is it allows cross-border trading between different countries uh, or between a country and a company in a different you know, part of the world. So this cross-border transboundary trading is something that is not happening on the national level, but is now uh, supposed to happen according to the rules that were adopted in, in Glasgow. And it's an interesting element of the Paris Agreement because it is really something that brings states to cooperate with each other and states and companies to cooperate with each other and companies cooperating also with each other. So it's this uh, uh, element of, of you know reaching out to others and try to increase uh, 
ambition through through carbon trading. You, there is also a, a UN mechanism that has now been established where you know there is going to be a body. It's called the supervisory body in Article 6, Paragraph 4, which will um, look at uh, particular projects and issue credits, which then can also be traded. So there are different, two different main uh, uh, ways of, of carbon trading. Yeah. And the general idea about carbon trading is that the abatement costs uh, for carbon, is it the abatement or is it mitigation cost? I'm not sure. Abatement um, in, yeah, abatement cost in some countries is lower than in other countries. And that's why it would maybe make sense to yeah do the abatement in countries where it's cheaper than in countries where it's more more expensive already, isn't it? That's the general idea of cap and trade. Basically, isn't yeah. It? And it doesn't matter for the climate system where you reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You know that that is that is a, a scientific basis <laughs> that it doesn't matter where you reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Any any every ton that's not emitted in, in the atmosphere counts. Yeah, like when I read all these articles about the um, the outcomes of COP, uh, one of the main topics was this: what you just mentioned, this uh, this coal phase down versus coal phase out. So the first question would be. What does that really mean? What are the differences? And the second one is, why do you think that this one was so played so high in the in the um, in the in the media? While, for example, I didn't even know that this the finalization of the Paris Agreement rulebook was actually one of the main things that actually happened at, at COP. Yeah, let's start with the second question. Why was it you know played out so? huge in, in the media. Well, partly that, that particular aspect about face out and face down of coal was something that happened at the final plenary, where which was open. You know, everybody could watch it online or <laughs> if you were there. Um, and of course, that showed or gave this impression to, to the world that this was the real crux issue where everybody had to agree and, you know, it was controversial. But there was so much more <laughs> uh, in all the, you know, two weeks prior to that, that that was debated and that was controversial and we found compromises. But that one final thing was like a little bit over the top pushed up um, in, in the media. But it is important, nevertheless, because it's the first decision ever that was taken that singles out one fossil fuel, uh, in this case, coal. Uh, in, we know that the energy sector is you know, the main sector that needs to be addressed through, as you rightly said, a just transition. Um, and you know, naming this sector is, is important. But you know, it would have been good to name that sector instead of just singling out one fossil fuel. You know, that doesn't mention gas. It doesn't mention oil. It only mentions coal. And, and that, in my view, isn't, isn't quite fair to those countries that still rely a lot on coal, like China and India, while, for example, the European Union has built its entire wealth on burning coal. Uh, so if you single out fossil fuels, then perhaps it would have been better to, to use, well, name all of them and, and not just coal, would have been fairer. But the signal is important. Um, and then the question, you know, facing out and facing down, it, it talks about unabated uh, or coal. What does that mean? Uh, that unabated uh, means that that is, these are emissions that are not addressed through or, 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 or you know, offset by, um, for example, carbon uh, capture and storage, um, something like this. Yeah, it's still okay to burn fossil fuels or like coal when you when you when you capture capture the carbon and when you sequestrate. Then then exactly that's exactly what it means. But that qualifier unabated that was put in by developed countries. 
you know, and, and nobody criticized it, but it's an, an equally, you know, unfortunate qualifier. You just say, you know, any. Because you mean that many developing countries can't can't afford carbon capture in storage, for example? No, it's just, you know, no, 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 that might also be an issue. But the, the whole criticism, for example, against China and India, because they changed face uh, out to face down and they were criticized for that. But that developed countries included that word unabated, that went, you know, without any criticism. But the countries put in their little words here and there that made it more um, uh, you know, acceptable to them to, to, to agree to these texts. Um, but also, if you probably heard about the, um, there was a bilateral declaration between China and the US, which was adopted a couple of days prior to the end of the of the COP. And in that declaration, we actually have the word facing down uh, of coal and not facing out. And that was a clear indication how far China would go. It was clear that China would never uh, go all the way to facing out of coal. And so it, in my view, it was a diplomatic failure to put that draft to parties and say, now you talk about facing out when China just a couple of days before had agreed to face down. So it was something that, you know, you would expect developing countries to react to and they did and they had to but that in front of the media and that what made it you know such a big 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 deal out of uh, this yeah so now we had this cop in in glasgow 2021 the next one is going to be in sham el-sheikh in egypt in 2022 and then the next one is 2023 i think it's in the united arab emirates um what what can we expect and what's what's the, on the agenda for the for the next year so next year we'll have the second and third part of the sixth assessment um report um, how will that play in and you said that in paris there were for example 300 people from norway and now there's not so much to negotiate about uh, anymore so how how big will these next cops be and what will be the main topics as you can see it right now well you know you would hope that we are going into over into an implementation phase where you don't need these massive meetings anymore but it doesn't seem to be the case you know people like to go there and, and they drink meet coffee and together they talk. nice <laughs> but <laughs> And drink coffee together, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it's it is an end in itself. It is important, but I, I would hope that they're a little bit more downscaled. But it's also an issue of you know pride a little bit for the host country. Every country wants to host the biggest COP and the most important COP ever. That is actually why COP 26 became so big because the UK wanted you know wanted it to be big. Because of Brexit, that was the first <laughs> big international event which they hosted and they wanted to establish themselves on the international agenda saying we, we, we can do it. <laughs> and they did. Uh, and I guess Egypt you know, probably also wants to have a very important COP and, you know, Emirates <laughs> afterwards. But what can we expect uh, from next year? Well, there, there are a couple of very important issues that are coming up. Uh, one is the agreement on a new global finance goal. Uh, you may all have heard about, you know, the, the goal of mobilizing 100 billion US dollars annually. And that was not achieved. You know, that in that cover decision, you know, developed country parties, kind of regrets it that they haven't achieved it yet, but they try to achieve it next year. But this is only the floor. From 2024 onwards, there has to be a new goal where 20, 100 billion dollars uh, is just the, the the bottom. And that new number, you know, can can be anything from 150 
billion, a trillion, 30 trillion. Nobody has yet, uh, you know, put on a, a number on the table. So this is going to be a very important discussion around finance. Uh, another element will be loss and damage, which was kind of the big loser in, in Glasgow. Um, small island developing states came with high expectations on getting more out on this issue of loss and damage, um, but, but they didn't. Um, third element is mitigation. Um, there is now a negotiation stream on, on mitigation. It's not quite clear what this is going to do. But as you said, we, we're expecting the, um, the reports by the second and third uh, working group of the IPCC and the sixth assessment report. And this is going to be this, the, on adaptation and on, on mitigation. And this is going to be really important to see what those reports say as you know, inputs into, into the uh, meeting in Egypt next year. Yeah. So, Christina, we're at the end now, but may I ask you if I can uh, call you up in a year again after the next COP and then maybe we'll have another chat because this just sounds like just like really important yeah, topics still. And I'm really looking forward to, to, yeah, to see uh, hopefully a high number um, and that it's not just, yeah, I, I like your 30 trillion number. Let's see if we're going to get there. That's really, that's like, that's amazingly high. Anyways, yeah. So. <laughs> we, can, we can do the Christmas edition every year. Let's do the Christmas edition. No, that sounds great. Cool. Hey, Christina, thanks for taking the time to actually yeah, talk to me, but obviously also talk, uh, making this knowledge available for the audience because the Antenna Energy Transition Podcast is about making knowledge available and creating a, a knowledge hub for anything that's related with the climate and with the, with the energy transition to just yeah inform people to make good decisions um, locally and nationally and internationally. So thanks for joining me today. And um, last thing, do if people want to reach out to you, like are you an avid Twitterer or where would you, where can people follow up what you're doing and like maybe your opinion on, on what's happening on in, in the international negotiations? Yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn, or just my university website. I put a lot of information out there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at the... University of Oslo, and if you Google my name at university, uh, you, you'll get to my website. But I, I, I put a lot of information out there, so just you know, follow me. I'll, I'll put them. I put these things into the show notes, so people, if you're listening to this, you will just—it's just one click away. All right, Christina, thanks for joining today. Talk to you soon. All the best to you. Bye bye.